Hey, Pastor Scott Rambo here. Join us as we enter into our classroom for this episode and see what it truly means to be followers of Christ. All right, so tonight what we're going to be talking about, you have your sheet, we're going to be talking about setting boundaries. Now that could mean a whole bunch of things, but in this instance, the question that was asked is there at the top. So what type of boundaries are we setting? It says, the question was asked, how do we handle boundaries with those who say you're supposed to be a Christian when you say no to stop enabling them while also ensuring we are not being taken advantage of? Now, I know that's kind of confusing the way it's written, so I'm going to express what that means. We all know that there's people who ask for things and ask for things and ask for things, and we continue to help and to help and to do and to do, but... The thing about it is, even in the Word of God, guys, there's a time and a place where that has to stop. Even in His own Word, which we're going to get into tonight, guess what? There's nothing for free. The only thing you ever received free was your salvation, right? And then once you've even received your salvation that was free, and the grace and the favor that gave it to you, what's, what is the expectation after that is that you what? There are changes in who you are. The The Honestly, to believe, to be saved and to believe is that there are going to be changes in the character and the lifestyle that you live. So God even has an expectation that when he saves you, that the proof of that salvation is what? Behold, all things have become new. You're changing day by day, glory by glory, however you want to put it. So even in the freest and the only thing you'll ever have that's truly free, there's still an expectation according to the word of God that... Fruits will be bore from that gift. Because here's the thing. If there's no fruits born, or bore, I'm sorry, you're not saved. That seems really harsh. But the biggest problem with people is, is that, yes, ma'am? I had a horrible realization of that this week. Well, not this weekend, but the weekend before. Yes, ma'am. It's not easy to be saved. No. You realize that's, a, that's very dear. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But humanly, because we're talking, we're fixing to talk about human beings, which we know is the saddest, the saddest bunch of people that there are. Sadly, even even the best among us is is not really that great, guys. Even the best among us is still selfish. We still self-serving. We still pray for things because what do we want? We want our life to be better. Our prayers. I would love for my daughter to be saved, and I mean to be to be whole. I've said that many times, but there's still selfishness in there. Right? There's still a selfishness in there. If Caitlin could get up and walk, that would be the most awesome thing ever. I can't even imagine that. But I can't pray that wholeheartedly, 100%, just for Caitlin's benefit because mine's in there too. There's still a little bit of selfishness in that. Right? So when we're talking about setting boundaries here, we're talking about individuals who, this is what I'm going to preface this with, we're talking about a person in this instance that is supposed to be a saved person. Okay, We're not talking about the world. If the person that's coming to you and is asking you for help and assistance and you're helping them and they're not a saved person, that's different than if it's a person who claims to be saved. So the person who's not saved, let's start with them just right quick. The person who's not saved, the Word of God tells us to do good to all, right? But especially those of the house of God. So it says do good to all men, especially those of the house of God. 
It also tells us in another place, I'll never forget when I first started coming here and Brother Gene was teaching, we had the, the tables in here and a different thing. He taught a lesson one night on how to live peaceably with men as much as is possible. And I remember him reading that and thinking, what do you mean as much as is possible? It just sounds to me like Jesus just said, just agree with everything everybody does. But as the man began to lay it out, that is not what the Word of God says. But that's what these individuals think. Well, you're a Christian. You're a born-again believer. Everything's about love. Everything's about giving. That, that's what the disciples did. That's what the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. Yes and no. The individuals that they were helping in Acts chapter 2, there at the end, was people within the church. But, but understand this. Even in that, what did they say? Everything they had, they sold lots of land. They sold things that they had to help so that everyone had what they needed. But did you notice where they were meeting? Where did it say they met? In one another's houses. These people were not poor. These people didn't spend every penny they had to where they couldn't help other people, right? These people had an overabundance. Let's start with that. They had an overabundance, and they sold what they had that was extra to help people who didn't have enough, right? But they didn't sell themselves out of house and home because then they couldn't even be beneficial to their own family. God's provision is never, and that's the first thing, God's provision is never, ever that you take so much away from your own household that you cannot take care of what God has put you over. Listen, your home, the people in your home, whether it be like Sister Ricky, you and your mom, your mother is a widow, and we could go in that, but we're not. But 1 Timothy 5 and 8 talk is talking specifically in there about widows, and we're going to use that as, as context. But he's saying if there are widows and they're over 60, right, and they're committed to God and they're committed to the Word of God and to, to the church, then who takes care of them? The church. The individuals of the church. But he says also if they have relatives, if that person has a son or a daughter, even if they have grandchildren, you know who's supposed to take care of them before the church? Their own family. Saved or unsaved. That is the biblical order. So if you would, turn to, to 1 Timothy uh, 5 and 8, and that's where we'll begin tonight. So we're not talking about people that are not saved, because here's the thing. We cannot expect unsaved people to, to do what's right. That's an impossibility. They don't know. That's why you have people out there that are begging on the corner, and not that some of them don't have a sad story. Not saying that, but let me explain something to you. If an individual has gotten to a point to where not one person in their whole family, the people they were born from, will help them, they have done something. They have done something or they have ran so far away that they don't want to deal with something. We can't help everyone. Even when Jesus Christ walked this earth, there were still people that were poor. There were still people that starved to death. Who did Jesus help? Well, who is the Lord? We're going to see who does God help. It's sad to say, but helps those who help themselves. He does help the downtrodden. He does help the brokenhearted. But if you are a lazy person, that's not how this works, guys. That's you word of God. Don't you don't eat. Now, and we're going to get to that. That's, that's right. That's in this study. That's able-bodied people. But he made a provision just like for these women who were Miss Edwina as a widow. If Miss Edwina had no family to take care of her and she could not pay her bills... We would pay her bills. This church, I'm not talking about we would budget it in the church. I'm talking about we. We are the church, remember? The church is not the building. 
The church is each individual person that's a part of it. So this church would say, you know what? Brother, I'm going to help pay her utility bill. Brother Gene's going to help me pay it. We're going to pay it every month. Brother Ethan says, I'll pay her water bill. And the two other, three other people say, well, we'll bring her groceries. That's what God's church does for one another, right? But can we do that for everybody? It's, an, it's impossible. Or then we can't take care of our own. So 1 Timothy 5 and 8 tells us this about that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know what's worse than an unbeliever? It, it's an infidel. If you go to the King James, that's called an infidel. An infidel is one that what? That doesn't even know the truth. In other words, it would be better to not know the truth because here's the thing. To know to do good and do it not is what, guys? To know to do good and do it not is sin, right? So that's where you find yourself. You find yourself in sin. So, there you go, brother. That's where the problem comes in. There is no provision, there is no place in this, no provision where you as an individual are expected to take so much from your own household that you cannot take care of your family. That's not in the Word of God. So let's just talk about this person who's asking you. I don't know, I don't even know whose question it is. I just got the question. But let's just say that someone comes to you and says, hey, I need $100 to help pay my electric bill. Okay, this church, we help people. We have helped a lot of people over the years because that's what the church of God does. That's what we do, just like we were talking about with Miss Eddie or anyone else who needs help. We're going to help one another. That's what we do. But if a person continues to come and continues to come, but they're not trying to do anything to help themselves, you can't take so much from your household that you can't take care of your own family. God never expects you to do that. Because just what we read in that verse, it says, but if, if one does not provide for his own, your own, the first thing you have, your own is your what? The family that's inside of your home. That's where it begins. I have the obligation to my son, to my wife, and to my daughter to do what? Provide. Somehow or another. And then we have to make sure that the money that we have in that home, what do we do with our money? We use it wisely. The same as we have to do here. You have to use that money wisely. Because if you don't, then you don't have any more money. Right? That's where, that's where one of the problems comes in. So, the problem with this individual, the saved individual is, they're going to come to you, and let's just say they continue to come, and you tell them, I do not have enough money to give you and pay my bills. Because this is a secondary issue, if, if that's the way you want to look at it. But here's a second thing about that. If you pay your bills and you can't pay your tithes, you cannot help other people. The Word of God says that the first tenth of what you get goes where? To God. Listen, guys, if you can't pay your tithes, it's going to be awful hard to help someone else. I'm just being honest. Because this Word says what? Once I help my household, it says do good to all men, but especially those of the household of what? Of God. My secondary, primary, my household. Brother Travis works, helps pay. Sister Stephanie works. They pay and they take care of their household. Once they've taken care of their household, their next obligation is not the person who lives next door to them. Their next obligation is the church of God. 
It's the fellowship. It's the union of those who they have been placed within. So the problem is, this is where that question comes in, is I'm going to turn there, is, is Titus 1 and 16. You have to understand that people are opportun- they're opportunists. That's what a lot of what we have. We had a guy come here a while back, and Brother Travis had a great idea. Thank God he was here. The guy needed 200 and something dollars, and Brother Travis said, all right, cool. You don't have a job. You need work. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay you part of it today, and once you pressure wash the church, we'll pay you the other part. What do you think he did, guys? We gave him the first part. We never saw him again because he didn't want to work for it. He was lazy. He came here because he was hoping we would hand out money. The, the last person that came before him, they showed up here wanting money, and we told them, we'll give you something, but we need your driver's license because we don't just give money to people that aren't church family anymore without a driver's license. That's fine. Give me your driver's license. Well, I'm not doing that. Then you're not getting anything because you're trying to run a scam on us. We have an obligation, just as you do to your own household, you have an obligation to handle the money properly. Because if you do not take care of your own family first, you are worse than an infidel. That's pretty horrible. Because guess what? You know the word of God, and yet you're not following the commandments of God. That makes you worse than one who doesn't know the truth. Sadly. So in Titus 1 and 16, this is what we find. It says, They profess to know God, but their deeds in their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This is a person who continues to come to you, especially that calls themselves saved, refuses to work and help themselves, but expects you to give and give and give until you have nothing left. Y'all, there's limits and boundaries to everything. That even goes with helping someone. Now, the Word of God tells us how often, are we, how, how often do we have to forgive someone? Pretty much forever. I know there's people that have unforgiveness for me in their heart. I can't help that. That's just how people are. I said this last uh, Sunday night. Whenever you, Part of being favored by God, part of being one of God's children is what? People are not going to like you. I'm just being honest, guys. There's people that are Christians that call themselves Christians that don't like me. And their reasons are not good reasons. And some of it is like this. Ethan was approached by a woman at Max. She goes in there just about every day, and she begs for money from people. And Ethan told her that he wasn't going to give her any money. And she said, well, I thought you were a Christian. I believe in the Word of God. I believe what it says. He says, well, then why are you begging for bread if you're a Christian? Because the Word of God says that my children won't go begging for bread. When he turned it around on them, he gave her, she gave him a cousin. You know why? Because she's not saved. She's not who she claimed to be. She's this individual right here. And I love Paul Washer says this. Twist not the scriptures lest you be like the devil. And that's exactly what people do when they come to you with an expectation. If someone comes to you and says, well, I thought you were a Christian. That is not the way that a Christian person talks to another person that's supposed to be a Christian, first of all. You're casting judgment on me. Before you judge me, you better bring me scriptural evidence that what I did was wrong. I'm being honest. Now, once you do that, we can have a wonderful conversation. We can reason it out. But an individual like this, all they're looking to do is try to make you feel bad so that you do what they want. That is not how Christianity works at all. 
Our, the job of a Christian is not to make another person feel so bad and so helpless for you that they turn around and do exactly what you want. If you've been in the Sunday mornings that we're talking about a relationship between a husband and a wife, we've talked about that quite a bit. This is not something where you lord something over or hold something over somebody else till you get your way. Right? That's not a very Christian... Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. But this person is not a Christian. They're definitely not acting in a Christian manner. Let's put it like that. At this point, they are at a very low point, and they are trying to use the Word of God to tell you that you're wrong and you're not even doing anything wrong because you're following the Word of God. I would love to be, I wish that I was a millionaire, a multimillionaire, because I would help everybody. But y'all, I can just barely pay my bills like everybody else here. When I get a bill that's $816 for electricity, I don't have a whole lot of other money to give you, right? I've got to take care of my own first. And people who don't understand that, they're going to have to get over that because they're not living out the Word of God. Don't go and try and make someone feel bad. That is not a Christian attitude at all. So the biblical order of importance is what's first? My, my family's first. My home is first. If I can't pay my own bills, I can't take care of my family. And that should be the first thing. The next time, whoever that was, the next time someone tells you that, you tell them, go to 1 Timothy 5 and 8. I'm, we are just able to pay our bills right now, just like everybody else. But guess what? We have a church, and it's full of awesome people. And as a collective body, we can help you. But I cannot continue to do this over and over because we can barely pay our own bills. The second part is the individual's responsibility. Now, this individual, if you would, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 15, this is that person, that person who is begging for bread or whatever it is that they're doing. God's Word says that there are responsibilities in, and most people don't want to have to do what they want to do because most people... The biggest thing they don't want to do is submit to the will of God. They don't want to conform to the image of Christ, and they sure don't want to follow his commandments. And the bigger problem is, guys, if you don't read the word of God, how do you even know what God's expectation is for your life? There, there's large gaps in your knowledge and your understanding, so you get things terribly, terribly wrong. So, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 5. 10 through, sorry, 10 through 15. Starting in 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's pretty cut and dry. There is no provision for laziness in the word of God. I mean, we can go back to Proverbs, which we're not going there, but it even talks about the ants and the grasshoppers and all of the animals. What do they do? They store up food for what? For winter, for when there's not going to be any food. Because guess what God gave them? He gave them a mind. He gave them instinct. And he's given me and you a mind to understand and to know what to do. In 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That is number two. That is a big problem. Because if you don't have enough time on your hands, you will destroy everything that you can. Not even, not even on purpose. You find a hill and you die on it. And other people suffer because you die on heels, because you don't have enough time to do what you should be doing. Everybody should be busy about whose business? The fathers. What did Jesus say? Why you, what do you mean, where am I? You should have known to come and find me right here in this temple. We're back in Luke chapter 2. 
have to be about my father's business. You too, guess what, Christian, born-again believer filled with that same very spirit, you're supposed to be about the business of the Lord. When we do things, we do everything as unto who? The Lord. That's not always easy. It really hasn't. Last week was really tough at work. Today was really tough at work. Yesterday was really tough at work, okay? But I say, when people ask me how was it, I say it was very, what was my word, Ricky? Productive. It was a very productive day. Was it a great day? Most certainly not. But it was very productive. So, let's continue on with that. It says in 12 and 3, and we left off in 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. This is where it gets into... Whoever asked the question, this is where we find the problem. Don't do weary in doing good. Because why? If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. You can't do that anymore. Even people who are saved, been saved for 20 or 30 years, you know what they don't have? They're immature. They're baby Christians. You cannot tell someone the truth out of the Word of God and not knock a chip off their shoulder. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The last one, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. But you know what? You can't do that anymore. Even in love. I cannot tell people in love. We, had, we have this thing that's called Together Tuesdays at work. And one of the guys is asking, asked the lead teacher on his team if his pastor could come, and she said no, because I'm tired of that Christianity stuff. That happened today. But she's a Christian, mind you. She's a Christian. But she's tired of that Christianity stuff because there's not enough division, diversification. Because if you can invite your pastor, we at least need to have a rabbi here or somebody from a mosque. That woman's not a Christian. And I'm pretty sure before it's all over with, she's going to know that truth. And she's not going to like me anymore. And I'm quite all right with that. Because that's not a Christian attitude. That's not the truth. No, I don't want a Christian here. And I'm a Christian. That, that makes zero sense. I don't want any Christians around here. And I'm a Christian myself, but I'm tired of that Christian stuff. <laughs> no, you're not a Christian. I'm sorry. You have a form of godliness without the power thereof. And if you don't change, you will go to hell. But you know what? Nobody's going to tell her that. And you know what she's probably going to do? Go to hell. Because people are cowards and nobody's going to tell her. Because she's going to get the opportunity from a person. Am I going to march in there tomorrow and tell her that? Most certainly not. But if the woman asks me the question and it's brought up, I'm going to be honest with her. And I may lose my job someday over that. But what is important? This is more important than anything else. When I, the first time that I decide that I'm going to say, you know what, my job is more important than the truth of God, you've already compromised. You may as well give it up. Because you are a compromiser now. And everybody knows that. That's not okay, guys. That's a hard way to live your life. But I said Sunday night, that's what being highly favored is. It's having a very hard life. Because, yea, all who are going to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you don't live a godly life, you can expect not to have a whole lot of turmoil in it. Because nothing's going to buffet you. Nothing's going to come against you. You're not a child of God. Proverbs 28 and 19 backs this up. 
This is the scriptural text that backs up. This is our proof texts. 28.19, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. You're supposed to work. I'm not going to go there, but let's talk about Genesis 3.19. We've been studying that. We've used that quite a bit in Sunday school. Let me tell you something. The judgment of God stands firm to this day. What did he tell Adam? Somebody, somebody get to it and read it. What, what did God tell him when he judged him? God said, this is, what I'm, this is your judgment, Adam. This is your curse. He said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Y'all, that hasn't changed. Has anybody seen the end of times? Have we been redeemed yet? No. You don't get to assert God's authority. If you don't work, you don't eat. But you know what the problem is? Is social reforms. Because guess what happens in America every day? They don't work, and yet they eat. Therein lies the problem. That's the whole problem, guys, is if you give someone, we talked about this, we're trying to, we've been trying to get somebody to work with Caitlin for over a month now. We can't find anybody. You know why? Because although the person could come and sit and at least seven hours of their day is going to get paid $9 an hour to do nothing but sit there as a companion, they can stay home and make more money than they can if they go get a job. The policies in this country has caused this country to be exactly what it is. World War II was the worst thing, and I will go back, I will say that for the rest of my life. The social reforms that happened after World War II ruined America, and it will, it will never be what it ever was before. Because it was the first time ever after the Great Depression, the Great Depression was horrible, and then we rolled over into a war, and that fueled the war machine. Men went to war, women went to work, and nothing's ever been the same since. Ever been the same since. Sadly. You, you're expected to work. Now, there's instances I, was, I wasn't able to work for a long time, but I took care of my kid. I wasn't lazy. I took care of the house, and my wife came home. She ate supper and took a bath. That is all she did. I still work in my home. Whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. God placed us where we were and put us through what we were through to learn. A, it's all part of my story. It's all part of who I am. But even in that, when the roles were reversed, I still did my part. Do your part. God does his part. He's faithful to the faithful. Proverbs 30, 15 through 16, not far away. Proverbs 30, 15 through 16. This one is pretty rough. I, I had to read a lot of commentaries on this one. You can never give enough to a selfish person. Ever. Not a selfish person that's your spouse, not a selfish person that's your kid, not a selfish person that's anybody. A selfish person is one of the most horrible people to be around because they're self-serving, which is exactly opposite of Philippians 2 and 5. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That what? Who is supposed to be exalted? Not you. But a selfish person, that's, that's the life that they live. So let's see what it says. This is not ideal, what you're compared to, selfish person. The leech has two daughters, give and give. And it actually, when you go back into it, it's called the horse leech. I studied it. 
This was a horse leech, and a horse leech, it's like any leech. What does a leech do? How long does a leech eat? Until it's what? It's engorged, and then what does it do? Falls off. Zero effort. Here's what I do. I'm not even going to put any effort into where I land or anything. I'm going to suck as much blood as I can. So here's this, in, this selfish person in your life, and everybody has some. They're going to suck as much life as they can out of you, whether it be money, whether it be your joy, whether it be your spirit, whether it be whatever it is. And then when they're done, they're just going to fall off. And they're going to leave you alone for a little while because here's the great thing about a leech. He doesn't want to kill you because he wants to come back and do it again. Right? He's not going to kill you. He's going to let you get a little bit better, and then he's going to come back and he's going to latch on again. It's a parasite. That's all that that is. And there's people in this world that that's what they are, sadly. They're a parasite. So he goes on to describe this in 16. It doesn't get any better because at the end of 15, he says, there are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Now, anytime you see that kind of wordplay in the Hebrew, this is, getting to, this is a big deal. Six things God hates, seven are an abomination. Proverbs 6, right? So he's saying this many, and then he adds one to show just how serious this is. So in 16, four things will, say, will not say enough. Sheol, hell. It will never say enough. What does the word say? She enlargeth herself daily. Satan will never, never, ever be happy until he has every single soul. If he could destroy every soul there was, that's the only thing that will ever bring him happiness. That's exactly right. Hell enlargeth herself daily. And guess what? If there's more room, we're just, it's just going to get bigger. Because what was, what was hell actually made for? Was for what? The, the fallen angels. That's it. That's it. So then it goes on to say a barren womb. Now understand why. In Hebrew times. Think about Rachel. What did Rachel, does anybody remember her words to her husband? She said, give me a kid or what? Or let me die. That is selfish. That's selfish. I don't, I'm just being honest with you. Give me a kid or let me die. You don't think your life is worth something to God even without a child. But back in those days, what happened if you were barren? Y'all, that was a really big deal. That was a super big deal. Because what did other Christians say about you? You were cursed of God. You were cursed. A woman who had a barren womb was cursed. She was no good for anything. Yes, which is sad. Really sad. Thank God we treat each other much, much better today. You think that the church is hard today, Christian? Thank God you're not living back in there with them 613 mitzvahs and the Ten Commandments. That was the time. So then he says, here's the next thing. Earth that is never satisfied with water. It doesn't matter how much water you put on the earth. What does it do whenever the ground gets full, it runs off in a ditch, and it keeps on going? It doesn't start putting it back into the hose. It doesn't start putting it back. The ground can never be satiated. Especially, you think about in the middle of a drought, because I've done it before. I've taken a water hose before whenever the cracks was this wide and set that water hose in that crack and turned it on, and an hour later it's still running in that crack. Right? Because the aquifers and the, the groundwater are so close, it's just going straight down. It's going straight down in there. It's not even making a difference. So then the last part of that says, what's the fourth thing? And fire that never says enough. Have you ever seen a fire that's engulfing something just say, I'm done, and put itself out? 
No, this is that same person. This is that person that we're talking about. This leech that says two things, give and give. Do you see any other words? I've had enough? Nope. Give, give, give. Me, me, me. The only one at the end of time that will have the right to say that is, is Jesus Christ. When he says, mine, mine, mine. You belong to me and you belong to me and you belong to me. If anybody has a right to be selfish, it was Jesus who lowered himself lower than the angels to come here. Although he was, although he was what? Equal with the Father, he lowered himself. I'm telling, this is why I'm telling you these things. This person is not a saved person. You can't make me believe that. You can't make me believe that this person is truly saved and filled with the same spirit that changed me and conformed me into what I am today. I'm still a sinner. And I still upset people every day by the way that I live, by the lack of time that I spend with them, by the way I don't speak to them, by the way I do speak to them. Because you know what? You can't make people happy. I've learned that. If I give somebody $10 today, they're going to want $20 tomorrow. Because guess what? Today I had $10. I could go to McDonald's. But, man, I sure would like to go to Outlaws. Brother Matt, that's going to cost $16 because that big old baked potato costs more. You can't make people happy. There's only one person you'll ever make happy. I hope you do, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. By living a life that's well-pleasing to the Father. That should be your sole purpose. Because if I please God, does it matter if anyone else is happy? Literally, it doesn't. But the great part about the Word of God says is that if I please the Father, those who should be pleased will be. Because I have a right relationship with God, and all the relationships in my life that are supposed to be they will line up according to the Word of God. Because I can't mistreat people. People think we mistreat them a lot when we don't. And I don't understand that. But that's just the way it is. You know, because people are going through things in their life. Just like this individual comes to you and says, Hey, I know that you helped me last month, but I really need some more money this month. But this person just bought a... This is the one that kills me. I had a guy needed some help. I helped the guy. He said, I need to go to the dollar store, and I need to go to the shell station. Fine. Picked him up off the road, drove him to the shell station. Guess what he got back in my vehicle with, a what? Tell me. Y'all know already what I'm saying, a pack of cigarettes. Let me tell you something, son. You just paid $8 for a pack of cigarettes. You could have bought a loaf of bread, some meat, and you could have bought some chips, and you could have eat for a week. I'm not giving him any more money. That's done. I will go and buy you some food. But you're not taking my money and buying cigarettes with it, son. That is not biblical. I'm not enabling you to be lazy, and I'm not enabling you to harm your body. Right? Because this is not just about, this is also about enabling someone and being taken advantage of. Both at the same time. You, are not been, you have not been made to be taken advantage of. And you're also not made to be an enabler. When you enable someone to harm themselves, is that going to ever get better? Because I know this seems harsh, and I said this the other night. I apologize, Ethan. I said you were 21 and you're 22. But when my son acted a fool, we tried to get him to stop, and he wouldn't. So we took his door off the hinges. And then he still wanted to have a bit of an attitude. And I told him, you have one, there's only one other place you have privacy. That's your bathroom. One more time, and you won't have a door on it either. Because I don't owe you privacy. I owe you food and shelter. That is it. 
right? This, it's no different with this people. Guys, we have to have boundaries. <laughs> God did not create us and not have boundaries in our life. We have to have boundaries with our spouses, with our children. Every relationship in your life should have a boundary. And that's where we get to the last part, because let me explain something to you. A lot of this is your fault. Yes, sir. That's right. No. Yes, sir. But they do learn. Yes, sir. Yep. Yes, sir. I agree. You spoil the child. No, no. Yes, sir. That's right. That's exactly right. The last part, guys, the third part to this is the end. Is if you want to turn to 2 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read 1 through 17. I realize that's a lot, but it is what it is. A lot of this is your fault. Okay? And that's where Hebrews is going to come in. But listen to what this says, 1 through 17. You have a responsibility too. So starting in 3, this is, this is titled Difficult Times Will Come. Well, I sure hope they, I hope they don't exponentially grow from where we are because times are pretty rough as they are. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. How many people do you know like that? Way more than you can count on your fingers and your toes. Because we're surrounded by them. Many pass through the Broadway. Few pass through the narrow gate. Sadly, most people are marching to hell right now. That's just the, that's the reality of it. And I hate that. I mean, I don't say that in a spiteful and a mean way because I'm like, yes, that's a horrible thing. But these same people have taken the grace of God and the goodness of God and they've twisted it. And they've turned it into something that's not right. And I, I think I named six or seven people... Sunday night that our prosperity gospel those people are leading people to hell let there not be many masters because they'll receive the greater condemnation understand that there's coming a day that those people will be damned 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 really bad it's bad enough if you're if you right now as a parent or as a grandparent or as a human being that's saved is leading other people astray you will be damned but those who have taken a leadership position are supposed to study the Word of God, know the Word of God, and deliver the Word of God. Y'all ought to do that. Because here's the thing. You can't tell me. You can't tell me that a person who makes multi-million dollars a year has teams of pastors. There's two of us here. That's it. Right? They have teams of people who spend, they get paid who knows how much, to study this word and to help understand and discern this word. You cannot tell me that some of those people don't know that they're twisting the word of God, but you know how much money they make doing it, and they love money more than they love God. That's what we just read about. Lovers of money. Lovers of things more than God. That's, that's a sad place to find yourself. It says, For among, those, among them are those who 
enter into households and captivate women, weak women weighed down with sins, led on various impulses. How many of these people get caught in sexual sin? Most of them. If you see something that happens with a big church, a matter of fact, every one of them, it's always a sexual sin. Every single time. That's what he's talking about right there. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray that none of us are like that. We're always learning, but we're never learning the truth because we have our own truth and we won't subject ourselves to the real truth of God. There's a lot of people like that. They have a form of godliness. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses so that these men also opposed the truth, men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are also able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith with, which is in Christ Jesus." Look at what he just said right there. Give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Y'all, there's a lot of people who are playing church. We've been accused of that recently. Right? We're not playing church. This is reality. This is real. Let me explain something. This is the thing that weighs on me every day of my life. I love my job. I love my family. I love all those things. But I will never be judged eternally by any of those things I do. I could do my job wrong and they'll fire me. I could be a terrible husband and my wife can leave me. God, God judges me and I go to hell. Which is, which is more important? I think eternal judgment is more important. This is not a game. This is reality. We're dealing with life and death every day when we talk about these things. Here's where we get in 16. This is where it comes in to you and I. This whole question that we had gets down to it. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that's the man, the woman, the human being who is filled with the Spirit of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's supposed to be you. Okay, so what does that mean? If you would, please turn to Hebrews. Hebrews. Chapter 5, 11. I remember reading this for the first time, and it took me aback. <laughs> so I was like, wow. Um, and this is, I'm going to tell you this because um, this is the way that people used to talk to people in the church, and they didn't get all hurt by it. They changed who they were, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what did he do? He wrote a letter, and he said, I'm not sorry that I made you sorry, right? Why? Because... I wrote you a letter. I told you the truth about who you truly were in Christ Jesus, which was a reprobate. And because I did that and told you the truth, you had a godly sorrow. And you're saved now. You have changed who you were and now you are right. Whenever, the person who loves you the most will tell you the most truth. In love. I said this the other day. There's truths that I could tell every single person in my life. But you know what? I don't have the opportunity to do it in love yet, so I'm not doing it. If you don't think that 1 Corinthians 13 really means what it means, then what are you doing? 
I cannot tell you something that's not in love because the Word of God will not allow me to do that. It has to be seasoned with salt. We just learned about salt, didn't we? It has to be done in the proper way because if not, it's not going to be received proper. So, excuse me, the last thing in there in 5 and 11 through 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Y'all, he's talking to save people. Concerning him, who? Concerning Christ. There's lots of things we would love to talk to you about and explain to you about, but you know what? You're still hung up on why he goes straight into 6-1, the elementary things of God. You're hung up on dead works. You're hung up on old things. It's like you acting like you never were saved and born again, and behold, all things have become new. You're still living in the past. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to, to, the, to need milk and not solid food. You can't tell me that's not a rebuke. That's a rebuke on a person who is a saved, born-again believer that has been in this for a certain amount of time, and they not only are they not growing, but they've went where? They've backslid. They've reverted back to where they are. Did, here's the great thing. Did Paul, did he say, which we're going to say it's Paul. We know it's not. If you're listening on there, it doesn't say who the writer of Hebrews are, but I believe it's Paul. Does the writer say that this person is unsaved? Does this writer say that the person lost their salvation? No. He says, wake up. Look at who you are. In many times, because remember the Bible is written to the church, not the world. Whenever he says to wake up, or he tells them to awaken, He's talking about the Spirit of God that's inside of you. Because the Spirit is alive, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. You, have, you are not feeding the Spirit. You are feeding the flesh, and you have allowed the flesh to override the Spirit that lives inside of you. Don't think you can't do that. Why does the Bible say multiple times, don't quench the Spirit? Because you have that ability. Every day when you wake up, you choose to serve God or you choose to serve flesh. And too often we serve flesh because that is pleasing to the flesh so then he goes on to say for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant let's read it again only whoever partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant if all you ever read is john three sixteen, is that is that the whole bible most certainly not how about matthew seven twenty one? how about depart from me you worker of iniquity I never knew you. I think, this is me, at this point in my Christian walk, once someone's been saved and born again, I would think that Matthew 7, 21 should be a lot more important than John 3, 16 because that's been deposited in my heart. This is written on the tablets of my heart that what? My Lord loved me. He died for me. He was buried. He rose again. Elementary principles of God. You shouldn't have to be taught those things. You need to be digging deeper into the Word of God. What is the heart of God? What does God want from me? What, am I, what do I do to please God? Yeah. yeah. In one word. Yeah. First Samuel. What does First Samuel say? He owns the cattle on how many hills? 10,000 hills. He owns everything. Does he want sacrifice? Does he want offering? No, Brother Gene, he wants obedience. What do I require of you? Obedience. And we have a hard time. Brother Matt, too. I'm pointing at myself. Yeah, Brother Scott said he only required what he required of his son. Obedience. Death to what? Self. Death to self. 
Then he says in 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of mm, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice, because of what? And I go back to it over and over, and I always will, is Matthew, whenever he's talking and he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but you need to learn of me. Y'all, we don't learn of Christ. I'm just being honest, and I'm being honest with myself. No matter how much I read the Word of God, I don't do it enough. No matter how much I pray, I don't do it enough. Well, you just sound like you're trying to be you know, self-righteous. No, I'm not. I'm being honest. I'm trying to be humble. I'm trying to be honest with you. Because every, every time I watch TikTok on my phone or every time I watch a movie and I don't take advantage of the Word of God, I don't see how that's pleasing to God. That's me personally. You spend as much time doing what you want to. But you know what? What's the thing that we're supposed to follow that starts with the C, our convictions? If I'm convicted of something, what do I need to do? I need to follow the conviction in my life out and either do or don't do whatever that is. Your convictions are different. Thank God. Because I don't want some people's convictions. I really don't. But here's the thing. All God's asked you to do is to what? To listen to the spirit that's in your life. But by exercising that, I can now discern the difference between good and evil. So when that person comes to me, guys, and they ask me for something, should I be able to discern? Most certainly. I should be able to by the Spirit of God. The last one is 1 Corinthians. I should by the Spirit of God, I should be able to know about that other person. Do I know that the other person is saved? That's not what I'm saying. That's ridiculous to think. I've been led to believe that in the past but to think that every person I walk up to I can tell if they're saved or not well you're not Jesus Christ the only person who ever said that he knew their heart was Jesus Jesus knew if they were following for the fishes and the loaves but here's the difference six months into a relationship with somebody you need to know if they're following for the fishes and the loaves and the reality is the more time you spend with them it's not even going to take that long guys really I, I I ride around with brother, my brother here. I don't get to spend time with him like I used to. We used to get to fish, and we really had, we used to have a really good time. But life is not like that anymore, y'all. God put him out, working far away because he knew the need that was in his home and the need that was here. I pray that in the future we can go do those things again. I was going through school, but I know just by the time I've spent with Travis Lacombe that he's a man of God. I know that. There's no doubt about that. Because I know that in the conversations that we've had, I've watched the man talk about things in his life that he knew wasn't right, that was bothering him, and cry about it. You know what that's called? That's conviction. That's God working in his life and dealing with those things. How do I know that? Because we spent time together. We have a kindred spirit now, right? That it just It's a certain amount of time that you spend with somebody, you're eventually going to know. You're going to discern that difference, Right? I know every person in here well enough at this point to know who you are in Christ, to know that you know that you're a flawed person just like I am. But I see the changes in your life. I've watched the changes in your life over time. And I, I too have discernment just as you do for me. And we watch one another struggle and we pray for each other. But we do see the changes in our lives, don't we? We see, we see the things that we've gone through, the struggles and how God has used them for His better. Well, it's no different when I'm looking at another person who's asking me for something. I've watched this person. I've known this person. Most people that, most people that walk up to you are not beggars. They're people that you know, right? But a beggar off the street walks up to you, you're going to know in that instant. I only pick up people that I know the Lord wants me to pick up. 
It's a feeling you get, y'all. I pass a lot of people up, but there's times where I've even turned around and went back because I learned this 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 thing where it says you're you training it. There's going to be a time when you pass that person up or you don't do what God said and you're going to be convicted. And then the next time that you do it, you're going to know that feeling and you're going to act on it. And then it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. Thank God. So the last one, 1 Corinthians 2. I know this may not seem like it, but this all ties in in Brother Matt's mind, and this is where, this is where we, we are. The last part is this is Paul's reliance Paul's reliance on the Spirit. And man, if there was ever anybody who relied on the Spirit of God other than Jesus Christ, I have not seen a man like that other than Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16, where we end tonight, it says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is who, for, is, is from, who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. What was the thing that was freely given to you by God? His Spirit, His salvation. You should know that. It shouldn't be a question. We should know that. And when that doubt comes in our mind, we go back to the Word of God. All right? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So this is where I'm gonna, I'll finish it out, but here's the question is, are, you, are your comparisons fleshly or spiritual? Whenever you're doing these things, are you comparing spirit with spirit? Is your spirit talking to their spirit? Or is it just because you don't like that person? Or because you're tired of helping that person? Or this is, this is you. Now, you have to be honest and deal with you. Because there's a lot of the decisions that we make every day to not talk to people, to not be around people, to not do things that are flesh. It really is. And to not even help another person, especially a person in the household of God. You just say, not helping them anymore. I'm done with them. I thank God God didn't do that to any of us. The last part in 14 there, it says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Y'all, you can't even understand the Word of God if you're not saved. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Right? He judges. Appraises means to judge, guys. It, think about an appraiser. When an appraiser comes, he makes a judgment call on how much somebody something costs, right? The appraisal, poor brother Scott, his house got flooded. So that appraiser came in and looked at all the things that were ruined, and maybe he saw his iPhone was on the floor. Let's just say, thank God it wasn't. iPhone's on the floor, and it had a foot of water over it. And he said, okay, brother, that's an iPhone 13. That Right now, it retails at $795. How old is it? Well, I got it a year ago. Okay, we're going to depreciate that thing, and it's depreciated by 25% because this is how old it is. We're going to give you $550 for it. You just made a judgment call, right? That's a fleshly judgment call, but it's still a judgment call. We're supposed to do that in our spiritual life every day. We make judgment calls. I do avoid some people sometimes, especially unsaved people, because I know in my spirit when I see that, I don't need to do that. I know those people, especially Sister Stephanie's going to learn the people that we work with. I think she already is. But there's just certain people that when you see them, <laughs> you, unless the Lord tells me to go in that room, Brother Matt's not going in that room because I done had too many conversations and none of them were good and most of them went to a terrible place where I ended up offending that person. And for some reason, the strange thing is they keep coming back. 
right? That's odd. But so the last part for <clears throat> he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the reason that I end with that is this is the this is the beginning question. The last verse holds a lot of truth. How do we handle boundaries with those who say you're supposed to be a Christian? When we and we say no, and we say we're not going to help you anymore. For more than one reason, because we either want to stop enabling their behavior or we want to ensure that we as humans are not being taken advantage of, our people of the church. What's that last verse say about you, Christian? It says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you truly have the mind of Christ, Hebrews 5, we go back there. If you truly have discernment, if you're exercising this thing, this will not be an issue for very long. I'm not saying that it's not an issue because it really is. You need to be able to tell that person first here, first Timothy 5 and 8, Titus 1 and 16, you need to quit twisting the word of God because that's not what it says. It actually says in 1 Timothy 5 and 8 that I'm supposed to take care of my household first because if I don't, I'm worse than an infidel. Now what you're telling me though is, is the way that you see it is if I don't help you, then I'm not a Christian and I'm worse than an infidel. So who's wrong? I think we need to take everything back to the word of God. They don't really have a foot to stand on. You're probably going to pack a cussing because they're not really saved and they're not going to mess with you anymore. How did Jesus stop every single thing? We are ignorant to this, but how did Jesus stop every attack with the what? With the Word of God. He's told them the truth. They came to him with something that was wrong. I love Paul Washer. I'll keep saying that. Twist not the Scriptures, lest you be like the devil. Any piece of Scripture that's not right and it's twisted, that's the devil, guys. That is not God. The Lord does not use his Word to make a Christian feel bad or to twist it. Who did that? Satan did when Jesus came out. He used it and twisted it to try and get his, usurp his will over God's. Don't let people do that to you, please. But that final verse right there, hold that in your heart, but we have the mind of Christ. And that goes twofold. The mind of Christ first says what? That other people are better than me. Esteem others above myself. That's number one. But then it goes to the second part and says, but I need to have spiritual discernment in what's actually happening here. So you don't just get to say to every single person that comes to you, no, you better be using discernment to find out if it's God's will or not. That's the end all of this whole study. Is yes, there are boundaries that are set in the Word of God, but it better be spiritually led by the Spirit that's in you when you say no. Right? You can't just say no to everybody just because you don't want to give them something. It needs to be for the right reason. That's right. Right to just spout out scripture. No. Nope. Be they say or Yes, ma'am. In love, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's right. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, we are finished. Thank you for being in class with us today. Tune in next week as we dive back into God's Word and learn more of Him. All right, welcome everybody. We're in Titus chapter 2. 
We're going to read 11 through 15 because uh, looking into the book of Nehemiah, which is what we're about to do over the next probably three weeks at least, maybe four, um, is looking at what the Bible says about being a worker for the kingdom. As a Christian, what is our main goal? To glorify God. That was a trick question. But what glorifies God? Doing His will, right? And doing His will does two things. One, it keeps us under subjection and under obedience, but it also builds His kingdom because for whatever reason, God in His sovereignty and His glory and His grace and His mercy has elected us, His church, to forward His kingdom. He could do that without us, but He chooses to use us. That is such a grace that is bestowed upon the church because He could even save us and not use us, but He still uses us because our God is good. And I love that. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11, reads like this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Here's the thing, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one discourage you. Let no one discourage you. So let's uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word, O oh God, for the ability to, to gather in, in fellowship and in learning of You. Help us to understand what You say to us through this book, Lord, as we look into Nehemiah and, and what it means to be uh, a worker for Your kingdom. Help us to understand and to apply these things to our individual lives so that we can uh, we can grow both in you and grow your kingdom here you know, in this earth, Lord. I ask this in your name. Amen. So, uh, two handouts. One, the one with the timeline at the top, that is from the ESV Study Bible. If you don't have that, it's like $23 for a, a hard copy. And there's a lot of good material in there. The, the introductions alone to each book, uh, they've done a really good job at at uh, the commentary on that. The commentary is good as well. Uh, if you're looking for something else to, to help you grow in the Word, the ESV Study Bible, it, it, it's, it's a good one. It is a good one. But that's this page right here. Uh, other than the maps, there's a big map of, of the trip from, from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem and stuff like that. But this is the material straight off of the page of that. Uh, the other handout is uh, a lot of the same information with the key themes of the book of Nehemiah attached to it as well. Um, and some lessons, some lessons that we're going to learn as we look into it. So, who wrote the book? Right? That's where we're going to start. Uh, I know we normally do questions, and this was a question, hey, what about Nehemiah? This is going to be more of a topic. Uh, a, a topic and a discussion, but uh, 
someone asked who I, I don't know a lot about Nehemiah can, can we go over Nehemiah and it's like, absolutely it's a great thing because the main theme of Nehemiah is what be workers of the kingdom that's what Nehemiah was Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Babylon Artaxerxes you can look into history that's why these people are pretty cool right Cyrus the Great Artaxerxes these are big names even in secular history. There's, Hollywood has taken them and run with them. The movie 300, they literally fight Xerxes, right? And these were real people, right? So if we look at just the king alone of Babylon, then we can even solidify even further the validity of the Word of God because we have Nehemiah and others. We're going to see Ezra, Malachi, the time of the Babylonian capture, we have several books of the Old Testament. Most of the minor prophets, Nehemiah is the last of the historical books. Uh, Malachi is, is the prophet at the time. Ezra is the priest at the time. You have people coming from Babylon, going to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Nehemiah is the third of three uh, pilgrimages from Babylon to Jerusalem. So, and still the walls aren't built. That's the, that's the topic that, that is Nehemiah. Nehemiah built the walls in 52 days. We're going to see that, which is a, amazing when you stop and you actually calculate out what, what the square mileage was of that city, which we will, and the amount of gates that it took to protect that city and the amount of people that they had working on it. 52 days, it's a miracle. So much so that the the neighboring tribes around them that, that meant to destroy them when they seen that the walls were built in the time that it was built. Even they said, that's a God thing. God is with those people. Uh, so that's what we see here. So who, who wrote the book? Jewish tradition identifies Nehemiah as the primary author of, of, of this book. Uh, we're kind of like the book of Hebrews, right? Who wrote Hebrews? We don't really know. There's no author penned at the bottom of, of this book. Uh, if you look at the handout with the timeline uh, from the ESV Study Bible, uh, they say that Nehemiah is the central figure. Obviously, it's, it's named after him. Uh, but, and it, it does contain his own records and own memoirs, uh, but they don't actually know who the author of the entire book is. In fact, uh, Historians and scholars believe that at one time Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one book. It was just one continuous story because what Ezra started, Nehemiah finished, and it was just kind of a transition, a transition of ownership, if you want to put it that way. Uh, nevertheless, we we do have direct words from Nehemiah, whether they took that from his journal or whoever was actually penning the book talked to Nehemiah. We don't actually know who the author is, but we do know. The date, uh, we do know the date, which would put us uh, somewhere around 444 BC, 444 BC, 445 BC. <clears throat> Brother, uh, how long did the uh, Babylonians rule over the uh, Jewish people? 70 years. 70 that was that was foretold by God that they would go into capture for 70 years. Uh, that's what started this whole pilgrimage back to Jerusalem is they finally 
started reading the scrolls, right? They, they started reading the scrolls. Ezra started reading the scrolls and he, he found where the prophecy was you're going to be in capture for 70 years. And then he calculated and he said, hey, man, we right here, we right here at 70 years. Maybe we ought to start praying and seeking God and maybe He'll deliver us because His Word said that He would. And you start the first pilgrimage back to Jerusalem where they, where they establish and then a, another pilgrimage happens. That's both in Ezra and then Nehemiah writes the third pilgrimage of building the walls and establishing uh, really a separation a separation and a union because here's the thing they were still under Babylonian rule because the the stretch of Babylon was the world at that time it was the world power until Rome took over and so they were still under Babylonian rule but they were their own little section just as God foretold uh, <clears throat> much of the books written in, in first person perspective uh, nothing is known about the the youth of Nehemiah when we first hear of Nehemiah he's a cupbearer to the king so he's grow he's grew up in Babylon and is really second to the king do some history on what a cupbearer was it's it's one of the most coveted positions in a kingdom because you literally have the ear of the king. It's also one of the most corrupted positions in the kingdom because how easy is it to buy off the cupbearer and then have the ear of the king, right? But as we'll see, Nehemiah was a just man. His character was, was good, and the reason that he'd done that, the one thing, the one thing that characterizes Nehemiah is a life of prayer. He, he didn't do anything without praying first. He didn't do anything. You'll see when the king finally says, hey, man, why are you down in the dumps? Because he wouldn't approach the king. You just didn't do that, right? And the king, because he knew Nehemiah, said, why are you so sad? And then Nehemiah perceived that it was an open door, and he said, I'm sad because I'm here in Babylon, and, and my people are, are in shambles, my, my city. Matter of fact, the very words is, the place where my father is buried is in shambles and I'm here and I'm in I'm in good condition right I, I, my heart is sorrowful and the king says what do you want to do right and before he opens his mouth the bible says in chapter 1 he prayed to god and then he said I, I want to go home <laughs> I want to go home and we'll see throughout Nehemiah that it it's 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 a god working for his people to reestablish in spite of their disobedience. Because he foretold it years before that you're going into capture because you're disobedient, because you worship idols, because you do all of these things. But even now, in your disobedience, I'm preparing a way. Right? This is a foreshadowing, just like everything else, to, to Christ to come. And you can look at Nehemiah and his position and the position of the people and the restoration of the people, and you can see us in our sinful ways, that even though we were in sin, Christ died for us. Right? That He prepared a way before you even desired that way. He prepared the way. Same thing we see here. That there is a way prepared. There's a restoration to come even before the capture begins. That's what Christ done for us that even before we were born, 
He knew us before in our mother's womb, before the foundations of the world, before we even sinned the first time. There was a preparation already made for our deliverance. So looking at the Old Testament, literally, you pick your favorite story in the Old Testament. It's about Jesus. It really is. The whole book, all 66 of them, everything that we have from cover to cover, it's about Christ. It really is. And in consequence, it's about us too. It's about us too. So uh, the book of Nehemiah could be read as a sequel or a continuation of the book of Ezra, which comes right before it. Okay. Uh, some scholars believe the two were originally one work. We covered that. So where and when are we? Well, in the book of Nehemiah, when it opens, we're in Persia. Okay, We're in Babylon. Uh, in the year 444 B.C., and it, it centers around Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We don't stay in Persia long. We go to Jerusalem. Uh, in the third of three returns from the exile to Babylon... And uh, scholars believe that the book was written after the fact. That's why we don't really know who the author is. Um, And it concluded around year 430. 430, so some 13 years. Some 13 years is what we're going to cover in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Fun fact of the Old Testament, Nehemiah is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. Okay? The last of the historical books. So starting in Genesis, we have the creation. We have the fall. We have a covenant made with a man. We have a covenant preserved right throughout all of Genesis. Then we have uh, occupation of the people before they were a people. Then we have the redemption of those people, Exodus. They leave Egypt and go into Canaan. Okay, All of this is history, historical books. Nehemiah is the last book on the timeline written for the history, the history section, the history section. I know where they're placed in the Bible, it, it can get kind of jumbled up on the on the uh, the timeline because we have the historical books, we have poetry, we have the prophets, and, and we have our own sections for that. But uh, where we are on the biblical timeline, this is this is the last historical book. The next thing after Nehemiah is the 400 years of silence, of nothingness. And then we have Matthew 1, right? From the wilderness, a man coming crying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And and the last book of the Old Testament is prophecy of that. And all this is happening all at the same time. Malachi said, the the next time you hear from me, it's going to be a crazy man coming out of of the, the wilderness and then things are going to get ridiculous because God with us, Emmanuel, He's coming. Uh, so that's where we are on the timeline. Why is Nehemiah important? Well, that's an easy question. It's in the Bible. If it's there, it's important, right? We, we have Timoth- uh, Paul's writings to Timothy. Everything is important. All of it is important. But it is important. Uh, and here's some of the important things. Nehemiah was a layman. Okay, He was a worker. He was a worker. Uh, not a priest. He's not a priest like Ezra. He's not a prophet like Malachi. He's just a man. He's just someone with a desire to do for the Lord. Okay. Uh, he served the Persian king. He was in a secular position, a good position. Nobody messed with the cupbearer. 
Because the mess with the cupbearer was the mess with the king. The easiest way to die was the mess with the one that the king cared about the most. Okay? Uh, nobody messed with him. That's also a good way to be killed is to be a bad cupbearer. Okay? Because the king wasn't going to... If he was a good king, a, a, a wise king, he wasn't going to have people in his inner circle that was against him. Right? So, uh, Nehemiah was a just man. He served the king rightly. He served the king in a secular position. Same thing we could say for us. When I work for the water board, that's not God. But I serve them with the, with the uprightness of my heart as a Christian, right? Because I do everything as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. And, and, and we can see that in Nehemiah, that as he served a Babylonian king in a position that had nothing to do with the temple or Jerusalem or anything, he served as one of God's chosen people because that's, that's, that's who he was. So remember that too. But he served. He, he wasn't in the ministry, right? He, he wasn't in the ministry. So the things of God isn't just for those who are in ministry. It's for everyone who believes, for whosoever believes, right? If Christ has saved you, you're a worker. You're a worker. It doesn't matter what your position is. We all work. Uh, he served in his secular position uh, before leading a group of Jews, one of the last uh, groups to leave Babylon. Uh, he, he served them in order to rebuild the city walls. That, that is why they're going back to the city. There's people already there. There's people that have been living there for years. They've, they've rebuilt the temple, right? They, they've established that there's people in the land but they're unprotected and they need protection. They need protection. Uh, Nehemiah's experience and expertise with the king's court equipped him to adequately be in this position that God needed him in. Almost as if God raised him up for such a time as this. Right? We see the same thing, the correlation in the New Testament we read in Titus that, that we are to live uprightly and godly in this age, in this time, in this present time right now because this is the time that God has us in. He's, he, he's not leading us into the future, although He is. But there's a work for you to do now just as if there's a work for you to do in the future. And that work in the future may be something different than you're doing now, but don't be sitting idly by is the theme of the Bible. Be doing for the Lord until you're called to do something else. Be doing. Be doing. You, are you uh, feel a burden to preach, but you're not yet to a level or an age or, or the ability to preach? Cool. Work for the Lord here. Pray diligently in God's will. He'll give you the ability to do that. Right? If He's putting a burden on you, He's going to build you up to that, but be working now. You don't feel like you, you need to be doing anything right now? You need to be praying. Because there's things to be doing. There's things to be doing for the kingdom. We are kingdom builders. That's what we are. That's what we do. That's the only reason why we're not saved and then slaughtered immediately or, or fall over dead at the altar or whatever it is to be with our Lord. Because there's a work to do. There's a work to do. The, the Great Commission, right? Evangelism, witnessing, building the kingdom. That was for everybody. Go back and read that at the end of the Gospel. For all of them. Everybody. 
<clears throat> make disciples of what? All men. Everybody. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We like to, to talk about that when we talk about missionary and stuff. But that's, that's for you, Christian. We're all disciples. We're all learners. And, and in, in confidence of that, why are you learning? Why? why? So you can be put to work. Right? Brother Ethan's being trained. Why is he being trained? Well, in hopes that with the money and the time and the, and the information spent, he's going to work and he's going to do. Right? So, remember that as well. Uh, under Nehemiah's leadership, the Jews withstood opposition and they came together to accomplish a singular goal. Uh, Nehemiah led this by example. By example. He didn't tell people what to do. He showed people what to do. Right? And, and, and we even see that in the in the real world, we want to call it like that, the reality is we, we've all had bosses who have told us what to do, people who are in leadership that told us what to do, and then people in leadership who were actually good leaders who not only told us what to do, that, that's their job, but they either did it alongside with us or showed us how they wanted, wanted it to be done. Uh, the, the old adage is you got a, you got a leader who is being pulled by a group of people, and then you have a leader who is out in front of the people helping pull, helping pull the load, right? Uh, Nehemiah was definitely the latter of that. He, he, was, he was building bricks and, and building the wall and setting the gates and fighting off enemies with, with everybody else. With everybody else. He was in the middle of it. <clears throat> uh, he partnered with Ezra, right? We talked about this being a, a, a thing. Uh, he also appears, Ezra also appears in this book. This is all happening all at the same time. Uh, one of the more important things is Nehemiah's humility. Nehemiah's humility. He's a cupbearer, y'all. He's, he's like, he's a pretty big deal in Babylon. And he leaves all that behind to go to a nothing town with no borders that's occupied still by the same people who he left and to be with his people. To, to do the work of God. Uh, that's a very humbling thing to do. He, he doesn't have the power of the king, although he, he went with letters, but he's not the cupbearer anymore. The, the king's not going to be without a cupbearer. He, he relinquished that position to go and do what God told him to do. Uh, humility before God, providing this example to, to the people around him. He did not claim glory. You're not going to find anywhere in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah said, I did this. Or, it's because I'm such this great big thing. It's the contrary of that. He gives glory to God, not himself. Glory to God, not himself. So, what's the, the big idea? You know, What's the theme of it? Well, Nehemiah is a recording. This is what the book is. It's a recording of the reconstruction of the Jerusalem walls. That's what this book is. Uh, the reconstruction and re-establishing uh, of the southern kingdom, of the southern kingdom, of Judah's capital city. That's what Jerusalem is. <clears throat> Together, uh, he and Ezra who led the spiritual revival. So you have Ezra who is, who is leading people into the things of God. He, one of the first things, if you read Ezra, when they got to Jerusalem, standing in the middle of the rubble, he, he pulls open a scroll and he reads the law. Right? He, he brings people back to the law. He reestablishes God 
as the leader of all this. We don't have a king. We have a king that lives in Babylon, but he ain't our king, right? He's God is God is it. And uh, Nehemiah, so you have a spiritual revival going on, and then you have Nehemiah who is building literally the kingdom, but is pulling together the tribes of Israel back to unity, back to the things of God as well. One doing a spiritual work, one doing a physical work, both doing the work of God. Both doing the work of God. That's the thing we need to remember in this church here, that there are uh, some of us who do a spiritual work, there are some of us who do a physical work, most of us do both, but the physical work is the one that gets neglected the most. Right? It takes both. It takes both. Spiritual work and a physical work. Working together. Uh, Nehemiah's life, it, it provides a, a really a fantastic study on leadership. If, if you're aspiring to be a leader, read Nehemiah. Read Nehemiah. Okay? In, in, in any fashion. I'm, I'm not just talking about spiritual. I mean, if you want to be a manager over people at work, read Nehemiah. If you if you if you want to be a, a good father, read Nehemiah. Because <laughs> he's a he's a good leader. He he leads by example and that's the only way we really can lead. Uh, Richard Paul hears me say a lot of stuff, but he does what he sees me do. It's just plain and simple, right? Same way in the spirit we God has said a lot of things right and then we look at Christ as the example who, who said the same thing uh, same thing we see from our spiritual leaders I, I really don't care what you're saying I do care what you're saying words matter but I care a whole lot more about what you're doing outside of this right because if you're living a, a separate life from what you're saying and doing in the church then it really doesn't matter what you're saying you need to stop saying it even if you're saying the truth you need somebody else needs to stand up there and say it right so remember that as well. Uh, he overcomes opposition from outsiders as well as insiders. They, they had both there. Uh, he exercises uh, administrative skills, uh, which is a, a gift of the Spirit, gift of administration. Pretty cool. Uh, he strategizes whenever he uses half the people to build the wall and half the people to guard the wall. Right? They even get down to where the, even the people building the wall are building with one hand. They still did this in 52 days. They're building with one hand and holding a sword with the other. Pretty, pretty neat stuff. You don't, you don't think God is in control of what He wants? Absolutely, He is. Absolutely, He is. Uh, Nehemiah becomes governor. He, he, he is there as a political figure for Babylon. So, so he relinquished being a cupbearer, but he's still. He's still a pretty big deal in the government of Babylon, right? So he's there as a political figure, but he's also there as a native, and he's there as a, a physical leader as well. Uh, he exhibited steadfast determination to complete his goals, which was the goals of God. That's what we need to do. We need to be determined to run our race, right? We're trying to keep it biblical to, to do the will of our Father always always and how does this apply how does all this apply to us well we've been talking about it but uh, the book of Nehemiah shows us the, the kind of significant impact one individual can have when operating under the will of God Okay, it always starts with one it always starts with one somebody is always the first 
to say, I, use me. Lord, I'll go. I'll do whatever we need to do. And, and then the Word of God says what? That it catches like wildfire from, from that one person. It, it spreads. And, and I stand up and I say, I, I don't care what the world's doing. I'm going to follow God. And, and Brother Matt gets influenced by that because he says, well, man, if, if Brother Scott can do it, then, uh, then I'm going to do it because my desire is to do that too. And for whatever reason, I haven't been able to. And then Brother Ethan says, well, there's two of them. I'll, I'll join in. And it just it, it multiplies and it multiplies and it, and it multiplies. Day of Pentecost. It started with 120 before the before the service was even over. 3,000 is is saved, right? I heard a, a speaker say today, and don't quote me on this. Do some research on it. Really help me with this. Said when the law was given, 3,000 died. When Pentecost happened, 3,000 was was brought in. Y'all write that down. Help me look that out. Tell me if that's biblical. Tell me if that's biblical. We're going to be looking in Exodus, I would assume. Uh, but when the law was given, 3,000 died. And when Pentecost happened, 3,000 were saved. So, I don't know. That's a that's a, a for side thing. Maybe we shouldn't have recorded it. But y'all help me look too, whoever listened. But let's look at that, really. That would be a cool little study to do, to, uh, to look at, to see. <clears throat> So it applies to our lives because we're all individuals, right? I see heads nodding. Is that right? No? Don't know yet? Okay. Uh, Nehemiah served. That's another thing. That's how it applies to us. Nehemiah didn't wait for somebody else. Nehemiah served, okay? Nehemiah didn't say, well, well I'm going to wait. If Miss, if Miss Denise takes off, then I'm going to go, right? Nehemiah didn't say, hey, I see this need. I'm going to raise up somebody, right? I'm going to cultivate somebody. I, I'm going to really mold somebody to do what I think God's... No, He he did it. He did it. Is that true? Exodus 32 and 28. So Exodus 32 and 28. Let's go ahead and read it, brother. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of that day, of the people that day, about 3,000 men. There you go. Exodus 34 and 2 also uh, corroborates that. Okay, so so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew the day of Pentecost. I knew three thousand was 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 brought into the kingdom that day. So, so just for clarification, for those who are going to be listening in later, uh, so Exodus does say that when the law was given, the Lord took three thousand people that day, three thousand men, and, and then when grace is given, when the new covenant is brought in, when the church is established, that day of Pentecost, that first salvific message is given by Peter, 3,000 are saved, right? So, uh, another reason why I'm, I'm glad I'm on this side of the New Testament. I'm on this side of the New Testament. And, and that's biblical too, because that's what the Word says. The, the, law, the law condemns, right? But Christ saves. Christ saves. So, God uses all manner of people. This is the thing to remember. Nehemiah is just a normal person. A normal man. Okay? He's not a priest. He's not a prince. He's not a prophet. He's not in any kind of ministry or anything like that. He's he has a, a, a day-to-day job and a burden placed on him by the Lord. That's it. So any anybody can be and anybody is used by God. God uses who he wants to use. He's no respecter of person, which is great because 
none of us was anything until God stepped into our life, right? <clears throat> maybe you maybe you felt or you know people who have felt like that, that that I can't really do anything for the kingdom if I'm not in ministry, right? I know I felt like that when I was growing up because it seemed like everybody who was doing for the kingdom was a preacher, right? Or or an evangelist or a missionary. Uh, you, you a big deal, you know? But that's not nowhere in the Bible where you have to be this person to be used by God. It's actually the opposite. You're a horrible person. God changes you and He uses you. Right? Think back on Sunday night of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. He wasn't a good man. He like straight up wasn't. He even says that of his own accord. I was the worst of sinners. But by grace, here I am. Here I am. So Nehemiah could say the same thing. Not that he was doing sin, but he is a man, right? But it wasn't because of his position that God used him. It was the other way around. God placed him in a position to use him. To use him. Same thing we see with us. Same thing we see with us. So have this attitude of your work. Colossians 3 and 17. Right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Do everything that we do as if God is your boss, because He is. He is. Right? We, we use that as a negative thing in, in the world. If I have a boss that never leaves me alone, what we say, well, he bird dogs me. He's just always, he, he's just always on me, right? Well, God is very much that way. He's, you're never away from Him. Think, think about that next time you think you're alone and doing whatever you're doing. You're never away from God, right? <laughs> Dad told me one time, he said, when you're, when you're by yourself, think, think that your mama's with you, right? That changes your thought a little bit. Like, ooh, what? Yeah, when you go on your date, yeah, act like your mama's with you. You know? Ooh, what? But he even told me one time, he said, act like you're on a date with your mama. And I was like, mm, I don't. No, no, I can't think like that. But that was, that was exactly what he was trying to do. I wasn't thinking like that, right? But we need, to, we need to be thinking about that as Christians. We act unchristianly a lot. We really do. We act as if God doesn't see what we do, but the Word of God says that He's recording everything that we do. We act like what we say doesn't matter, but the Word of God says that He's writing every word that comes out of our mouth, and that's what we're going to be judged by. We need to act right a little bit better, right? I, me? Me. I'm talking to me. That's why the first thing I seen whenever I seen Miss Kayla, she was the one that asked about Nehemiah. She said, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Here, here it comes. Because I'm studying this last night going, oh, I wasn't doing a lot of amen and I'm doing a lot of oh men. Oh me. Oh me. Oh me. Because here's the thing. I do a lot. I do a lot. Spiritually and physically. I can do more. I really can. I really can. Do I need to do more? I don't know. That's a personal question. Each one of us needs to ask that. Can I be doing more? Do I need to do more? Should I do more? Should I let somebody else do it? Well, according to Nehemiah, if I see something that needs to be done, do it. Do it. 
And not only that, lead by example and have faith that God's going to build up a people to do it with me. To do it with me. Do the work, and then one day you'll look over your shoulder and there'll be people putting bricks next to you. Right? But remember Titus too. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when you're the only one looking at the wall. We're going to see that in Nehemiah. He goes off by himself, leaves everybody, and he takes a donkey and he, he goes around the wall and inspects the wall and the gates. It's just him. This is a discouraging thing. He comes back and he's like, we are in a, we're in a bind, y'all. This is a big deal. But then the very next chapter, they're building the wall. They're building the wall. So some lessons, some lessons to take. Okay. Uh, to take from Nehemiah is one uh, it takes all kinds it takes all kinds uh, you want something to do you think that you need to be doing something maybe you're like Nehemiah he wasn't in the ministry maybe you're just somebody who co comes to church maybe you're just somebody who's saved Maybe you're just somebody who reads the Bible. Maybe you're just somebody who prays earnestly for God to use them. Maybe you're a vessel waiting to be used. You ever think about that? It's two, two sides of that same coin. One, one side says, well, I don't know what's wrong with me. God isn't using me. The other side of that coin is God saying, I have a work for you to do. You just, you're not seeing what's in front of you. right? You're not seeing it. Pray. We pray amiss a lot. Are you praying rightly? Are you praying the will of God? What do you want me to do? A lot of times, and me included, I bring a lot of things to the Lord. Sometimes I don't stop to ask God, what, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? I, I bring a list, uh, a Christmas list sometimes too. Like, this would be cool. This would be neat. Oh, I know it's all in your will, Lord, but if you could really squeeze this in, this would be good. This would be good. I really like to see this. And rarely I find myself, and I have to repent over this because it's a sinful prayer. I have to repent because I'll say, okay, I love you, Lord. Bye. And, and I never ask Him, what's your will in all of this? Hey, I, I, I have this issue. I have this thing. I'm going to wait on you. What, do you. what do you say? Right? What do you say? We have a lot of one-sided prayers where God wants to have communion with us. He wants to have relationship with us. And the problem is, is because I, I say a lot and I never stop. Right? If I show up at the house and I talk for three hours and, and ask, ask Tab, what do you think about this? And then just answer and, and just keep on going. She never gets a word in. Have we had a conversation? No, she's heard me talk. And, and more than that, she's very aggravated. Right? Think on that for a second. We vex the spirit within us. We aggravate our, our God. We we really do sometimes when we pray. We need to repent over that. We do. We need to ask God and then stop and listen. Read. Be washed by the word. Be ever in prayer. And he'll answer us. He always does. He always does. And it's gonna come in the weirdest ways, too. It may come from a five-year-old who can't even read yet, but he got a Bible for, for his birthday, right? And he, he opened it up to like a few pages and then, man, had one of the best messages I've heard ever. He said, we got, we got to make good choices. Smart choices. He said, you want to know what I learned in the Bible? Right there in the front of it? We need to make smart choices. Here's the thing. He don't have a clue what he read, but that's exactly what Genesis says at the beginning. 
We made some dumb choices. Adam made some dumb choices that led to the fall of mankind. He needed to make smart choices. Here's the thing. We do too. We do too. That's a five-year-old. Out of the mouth of babes, right? He ain't got a clue. Pure in spirit. I, 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 I pray earnestly that he holds on to that. That, he, that he's saved at a young age. That he doesn't go through life like I did. That none of that has to be. None of that has to be. <clears throat> Makes me happy. You know, it really does. It really does. Because all he's doing, and this isn't a, this is a humble thing. It really is for for a father to see their five year old son emulate what he's seeing, and what he's doing is he's preaching at home, because that's what he sees his daddy doing. But not only that is he's he's doing what I'm doing. So pray that I maintain a good character and a good example. Not just for my son, but for my family. Not just for my family, but this church. Not just for this church, but for the, the very position of, of pastoralship that, that I maintain good character, that I'm above reproach, right? That I, I maintain what I need for this office. And it shows forth throughout all of our life. That's what building this kingdom is. It starts with you, and then it affects the ones next to you, and then it affects the next ones to them. And it spills off into this world where the kingdom is feathered. Where the kingdom is feathered. So it takes all kinds. Three men play an important role in uh, rebuilding Jerusalem. Uh, you have Zerubbabel. He's the prince. Okay? He's the prince. Uh, Ezra. He's the priest and the scribe. And then we have Nehemiah. And really a fourth, he, he's, he's not in the book, that's why I left him out, but the prophet Malachi is, is this same time. It, it, this is all happening at the same time. Uh, the prince and the priest, they, they played their roles well. God has them in place. He's, God is using them. But they can't get the one thing done that needs to be done. The, the walls are still not built. We have a priest who's, who's preaching in, in the temple who's presenting the law, not only uh, fulfilling the role of priest, but as scribe who is, who is teaching the people the, the law. It takes both, right? And you have a prince who's a prince over rubble at this point. But here comes this man out of nowhere named Nehemiah who goes to church, right? listens to Ezra, falls under subjection to the prince, and builds the walls, does the work. He does the work. Uh, they failed to build the walls. The temple is still uncleansed. They, they can't sacrifice. They can't do what needs to be done. Uh, they're being taught the law, but they can't do anything with it. Right? Two very important things. They can't protect themselves from danger. They can't worship God correctly, uh, according to the law at this time. Nehemiah, a layman, does a very important work. A very important work. Uh, and God raised him up to do that. That's lesson one. Lesson two, pray about everything. Pray about everything. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, that's literally what that means. You can look into the Greek. You can go back to the original text. What it, pray nonstop. Don't stop praying. That's what that means. And Nehemiah did that. He believed in watching and working. Uh, he also believed in working and praying. Prayer is the main thing that characterizes 
the man of Nehemiah. He was a man of prayer. A man of prayer. Uh, this book is short. It's 13 chapters, but they're short chapters. They're, they're little. Uh, 14 times, 14 times we see Nehemiah pray. It's written down in, in the book of Nehemiah. Before he set out on a project, he prayed. Okay. Before he approached the king, he prayed. Uh, when he was in trouble, he prayed. When he was out of trouble, he prayed. Nehemiah prayed about everything. Everything. And like I said, he was the cupbearer. He had the ear of the king. But yet before he spoke on behalf of God's business, even though the king looked at him and said, what do you want? He prayed. He prayed. He knew what God wanted. He wanted the walls built because that was the burden in his heart. But when he was presented the opportunity, when God flung the door open, right? Nobody talks to the king. The king talks to people. The king looked at Nehemiah and said, tell me what you want to do. Nehemiah made sure to pray that what he wanted to do was what God wanted to do. Right? Even when... So here's the thing. Nehemiah had been praying. Okay? Actually, the first chapter says that even though the king... He wasn't sorrowful in front of the king. So he had been praying before. Been waiting on an opportunity. Now the opportunity is presented. How many has ever been there? You've been praying, Lord, do this, do that. Help me to see this. Help me to do that. Then one day, there it is. And then we just kind of fall off into it. Right? That's a time for prayer too. Even when the opportunity is presented, pray. Pray. Lord, thank You for this opportunity. But now, guide my next steps. Make sure that even though this is the opportunity, make sure I do it rightly. Make sure I do exactly what You want. Because the first time we're presented with what we want, guess what? I get very excited. Right? That thing I've been praying for and in the rightness of heart and it's the desire and I know it's the will of God. But then I go and mess it up. <laughs> I go and mess it up because immediately, that's how fast we do this thing. We pray to God. We do everything right. God gives us what we're praying for and then I start doing it in myself. Right? Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He never wanted to be the one doing the work. Even though he was the one doing the work, he didn't want to be the one behind the decisions of the work. God is in control. God is in control. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, what, a, what an example. A man of prayer, that's what we're supposed to be. A woman of prayer, that's what we're supposed to be. Uh, lesson three, care about the things of God. Right? It's not enough to be praying, but we need to be praying about the right things. Be praying for the things that God cares about. He was concerned. Nehemiah was concerned about God and His uh, His will. <clears throat> as much as Nehemiah cared about Jerusalem, uh, he didn't run ahead of God. That's the thing. When, when he heard that Jerusalem was in shambles, he didn't get up and leave. He, he actually got up and went to work. Right? He, he cried continuously. That's what chapter 1 says. For days he mourned. And then he got up and went to work. Right? He, he continued doing what he was called to do for that time. I'm the cupbearer. That's what I'm going to do. While praying. While seeking. While waiting. That, that's the theme of DMI. And really the theme of the whole Bible is be about the Father's business even if you don't know what that business is. Be working for the kingdom. 
be doing for the kingdom. We know, even if we don't know what our next step is, we know I should pray and read our Bible and witness and, and, and be the church, right? Be loving to each other. We know there's things that we should be doing, even if I don't know what position I should be in. Does that make sense? I know I should still be a Christian no matter what I do. No matter what I do. <clears throat> uh, lesson four, we'll see, is uh, God leads different people in different ways. Okay? He, he, he just does. We're all led in the ways of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But, but each one of our testimonies is different. Right? And I'm not even talking about our, our, our salvation testimony. Just like the way our life plays out. It's just completely different. I got to this position in this office a different way than somebody else did, right? It, God leads us all through different ways. Uh, he doesn't lead us all the same way because we're not all the same people. We're really not. We're being made into the image of one person, but man, there's there's some different avenues that we that we take in that. All through Christ, I, I'm not talking salvation. I'm just talking life. Life plays out differently. Uh, and, and we see that. You look back in Ezra, he led Ezra back for the first two pilgrimages. Um, uh, he led Ezra back with no support at all. They just got up. They got word that the king said y'all could go, and they just left. They went through hostile hostile areas, and, and all. they just went to Jerusalem with nothing. Then you see, we'll see Nehemiah leaves with letters from the king and half of the Persian army leading the way with protection, right? Sometimes we do this thing alone. Sometimes God provides help. But God, nevertheless, is there. Always. Always. Uh, he uses both ways. And you'll see that even in your life. There's times in your life when it's you and God, and that's it. In the world. Think of a, a missionary going to the Congo or somewhere. It, it, it's just them. That's it. Other times, we, we get to come to church, and we have like-minded individuals, and we have help in this. We have help in this. But God's there nevertheless. So if you find yourself when it's just you and God, be grateful that God's there. When you find yourself in times where it's you, God, and a, a host of others to help, be ever more grateful that God's there and that He's provided help. That he's provided help. And lesson five is God sees your faithfulness. That's what we need to understand, that God sees you. He sees you, Christian. He didn't see you before. He couldn't look on sin, right? He chose not, but then, then He showed Himself to you. He sees you now. He sees your faithfulness. He sees when times is hard and you're still faithful. When you do His commandments, basically. He sees when you're obedient. He knows that and He writes that down. Uh, the rebuilding of the walls. It, it's one of the, one of the greatest, probably the greatest building projects of, of all of the Bible. Uh, surpassing the ark. The ark took a, a lot of time to build, surpassing just about anything. 52 days to build the temple and set gates. Uh, look around at all these houses being built. Man, they've been built for months, and that's just a 1,500 square foot house, right? 52 days to build. <clears throat> it's hard work. It, it wasn't that the work was easy, it's hard work. But nevertheless, God was with them. It took a lot of people. It started with a few and ended with a lot. It took a lot of people. God raises up who He needs. If it's a big work, 
he raises up people to do that work. If it's a short work, he raises up people to do that work. The thing to remember is to be a part of the work. Be a part of the work. Uh, many, we'll, we'll see, many made significant sacrifices. Nehemiah being one of them. He left a cushion life in the palace to go build a wall in the desert. But he did what God told him to do. And he's remembered it to this day from it. That's what leads us to the next thing is why, why genealogies? Here's the thing. Ne- Nehemiah has some big names in it that we can't pronounce. Okay, Why the genealogies? Nehemiah asked God to remember him. How many That hit me hard. How many remembers that? Or not remembers that, but, but thinks that. God, remember me. Remember me. Because here's the thing. A lot of people forget us. We go throughout our day, and, and we're not on a lot of people's radars. We're really not. Uh, especially for those who, who just reject God altogether. You're, you're just one of those. Right? They don't even know us. But we're just one of those for the most part. Nehemiah prayed, and he asked God to remember him. His concern was just that, that he, he was concerned for God's people and God's work and God's city, but he knew... The moment he died, people would start to forget him. They, they, they would just stop knowing who Nehemiah was. Same thing happens for us. Uh, let me get put in the ground. My family remembers me. My wife surely remembers me. My son will remember me. But let generations go on. Eventually, not out of love or, or, or out of hatred or, or anything. You're just forgotten. The further the further you go from your point of death, you're just you're just forgotten. I was gracious enough to, to know a lot of my great grandparents. I even have a few glimpses of remembrance of my great great grandmother. But Richard Paul don't know nothing about her. I don't even have a lot to tell him about her, other than her name. The next generation it'll be that much further removed. You see what I'm saying? I had nothing against the woman. Didn't know her. Right? My mama knew her. See, it, it, the further you get, the more we forget. We just forget. Life goes on. Nehemiah knew that, and he prayed God to remember him. We have short memories. We really do. Uh, the wonderful thing is this, that God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget His people. He doesn't. He forgets our sin. Right? We learned that. He forgets our sin. He doesn't forget you, though. He remembers you. Matter of fact, that's what salvation is, is that He knows you. He knows you. Oh, no. It's beeping at me. Uh, there's, there's genealogies throughout all of the Bible, and Nehemiah is one of them. It's as if God is saying this, that, that these are my people, and I know them, and I want you to know them, too. Right? Not that they were important, but that the work that they did was important. The position that they had in the timeline was important. Uh, throughout all of Scripture, Genesis 49, we have the list of the 12 tribes for the first time. Samuel 23, we have a list of David's mighty men. Right, Those who, who stayed with David. Uh, 
the first few chapters of First Chronicles is a list of all the families of Israel. That's a that's a huge one. That's big. Uh, Nehemiah three is the list of the workers. Not only a list of the workers, but read it. It's literally the parts of the wall that they built. It's pretty neat. Very specific. Romans six a roster of hellos. Right? Hey, know this person. Know that. Say hello to this person. Have fellowship with this person. And then Hebrews 11, we have all those who were found faithful from, from Genesis up to that point. God remembers each person and records their name. He records us. He knows us. Uh, Dr. McGee, uh, he's a theologian. He said this, and, and be thinking on this as we read through Nehemiah. Uh, if we want to be in God's will today... Somewhere along the line, we will have to become involved in the movement of getting the word out to hungry hearts. None of us can do it alone. It must be a team effort. Okay? Look on... Oh, no. Somebody read the Spurgeon quotes. I left that out of my notes. It's on the bottom of your thing. It is one of the first and last qualifications of a good workman for God that he should put his heart into his work. Hard work will do almost everything, but in God's service, it must not only be hard work, but hot work. The heart must be on fire. That's it. And, and we'll see that in Nehemiah, that not only did he did the work, but he desired to do the work. And that's what we see a lot in churches today. We have a lot of people working themselves to death. If they didn't have to, they wouldn't. It, it just It's just truth. What God desires is the heart. Always. 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 So remember that. Brother Matt, pray and dismiss us, and then we'll have questions. Father, thank you for another time to come together, Lord. Lord read your word, God, and reason amongst ourselves, Father. We thank you for this genealogy that's in this book, God, for the story, the testimony of Nehemiah, the things that he did for you, Father that he was a man that did seek after your will. Father, his heart was set on you and your things. Father, I pray that in this in this church, in this fellowship, God, that you would speak to hearts and minds, God, that our will would be your will. And Father, you would lead us into those places where we need to be. And God, that just as your word says, Lord, we look out and what we should see is that the fields are right for hearts. Father, even those in the church, God, need to see the part that they need to play in that harvest and in the work that needs to be done within these walls. Father, I pray for those who were unable to be here tonight, God, for those who have infirmities in their bodies and their minds. Even those who had surgeries that are recovering, Father, speak to them tonight, God. Let your angels minister to them. I pray they find time to be in your word tonight, God, that uh, you can give them a word of their own, Lord, that they might come to have more faith in you and to grow. It's in Jesus' name I pray.